This is one of those stories, I think, that's got everything when you think of characters. You know, like the best movies, um, which, which incidentally I think are kind of Disney movies, really, because they have everything. You know, it starts really well. You've got a hero. Um, then you've got a villain, and I mean like a sinister villain. I think the best movies, I think, are the films where the bad guy is properly bad. Do you know when the bad guy's a bit lame? The whole movie's a bit lame, right? If you never like oh my goodness, this guy's really sinister. It's a bit like, ugh. So like Lion King does it for me because Scar is like, he's pretty bad. So like you've got good, good guys going on and you've got a really, um, you know, bad, sinister kind of character. Um, you've got my least favorite bit of plots, which is the romance thread, um, which I know some people love, the kind of love story, but I think films without them are better. Um, and then you've got like threat and you've got um, humor. Um, but in the end, it always ends well. You think it's going to go terribly, some terrible thing happens, but then it comes through. And this book in the Bible, which is Esther, I think is just like that. You read it, you've got like a heroine. She's amazing. She's fantastic. It, it starts really well. But then actually you realize maybe it's not all as it seems. You've got, I think, one of the most evil people in the whole of the Bible in the story of Esther, in the person of Haman. Like, there's some evil people in the Bible. Haman's in my top five bad guys. Like, he's pretty bad. Um, he's in this story. Um, you've got uh, kings. You've got royalty. You've got family. There's so much, and so obviously it's, it's numerous chapters, so we can't go into everything, but the hero I want to look at a little bit is Esther. But to give you a back, kind of backstory to fill you in a little bit, have you seen the film 300? It's pretty cool. It's like, we are, like, lots of gruesome stuff. It's cool. Um, in that is a king called Artaxerxes, and I'm not sure if you've seen it. He's got, like, rings coming out of his nose, and he's got a shaved head, and he's covered in tattoos. That is apparently this guy, okay? So when we're talking about King Xerxes, that's him, but I think with a bit of poetic license by the director of 300. Um, but uh, he's known as Ahasuerus. Um, and he is the king of the Persian Empire, okay? That's what's going on there. They're in captivity, God's people, um, in Persia. And Xerxes, I want you to think of it like this, is the most powerful man in the world. That's who he is. He's the most powerful man in the world. There is nobody like him. Nobody can touch him. His, his empire knows no bounds. He, he puts the fear of kind of dread into people wherever he goes. He is the single most powerful person on the planet. His first wife, well, it didn't work out very well and got rid of her. Um, so he got a new wife, and that's Esther. And would you believe she becomes his wife by winning a beauty pageant? This isn't Legally Blonde, this is the Bible. Amazing. Um, and so uh, she becomes queen, um, and uh, King Xerxes' right-hand man is Haman. Like the panto villain of all time. The most evil man. And as we read through this, he wants to commit a genocide against God's people. And the irony of the story is, Haman builds this massive noose and this massive thing to gallows to hang Mordecai, who's Esther's cousin and guardian. And he ends up hung on it himself, which is the irony of the book. So it's quite funny in places. Um, but there's a guy, Haman, who's evil. He loves power, fame, glory... And he is the second most powerful man in all of the Persian Empire, okay? And that's what Esther is up against. The most powerful man in the Persian Empire and the second most powerful man in the world, even. And the story is this. A decree is sent out across Persia uh, at Haman's request that everybody needs to bow down and worship him. 
And of course, Mordecai, who's a God-fearing Jew, isn't having any of it. And so because he isn't having any of it, he gets in Haman's bad books. Haman goes, oh, I know, you're a Jew. I don't like you, Mordecai. I'm going to go to the king and I'm going to get a decree passed that means that every single Jew in the whole of the Persian Empire is going to be killed. And it's going to happen on a set day at a set time. And that's the story of Esther. It's pretty grim. That's what's going on. There's a death warrant. If you're Jewish, you're going to die. And the, the, the edict's been sent out. It's signed by King Xerxes. And it's going to happen on a certain date at a certain time. Every Jewish person in the Persian Empire is going to be slaughtered. And Esther, who is the queen, married to the most powerful man in the world, finds out about it. And she's one of God's people, okay? That's the story of Esther. She's a Jew, but she's almost been like a Jew in disguise. She hasn't been living out faithfully. I mean, even her name gives it away. Esther is a kind of Greek-Persian name, what she was known by. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. But she's not known as Hadassah, she's known as Esther. Uh, and so she's kind of not been living out what it means to, to be a Jewish person, even in captivity. She's not been worshipping God with her people. She's not been hanging out with her people. She's been the queen alongside Xerxes. But there comes a point where there's a death sentence on not just Mordecai, but of course, by proxy, there's a death sentence on Queen Esther as well. Because she's Jewish Two. And so the whole book of Esther is this. Esther, what are you going to do about it? The people are going to die. Queen Esther, our hope lies in you. We don't have any other option. What are you going to do about it? And I just want to read, this is chapter four of Esther, okay? And uh, I just want to read this chapter. And there's a couple of verses I'm going to pull out because you could go on, I think, for an awfully long time about how Esther is, is heroic and what an amazing woman she is, what an inspirational figure she is. But we can't do justice to her character in like this 25-minute slot. So I'm just going to pick out a couple of things that hopefully will be really helpful. But before that, I want to read chapter 4. And hopefully with that little backstory, you've got a little idea of what's going on. When Mordecai, who is Esther's guardian and Esther's cousin, the one who's looking out for her, learned of all that could be done. He tore his clothes and he put sackcloth and ashes on and he went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews. There was fasting and there was weeping and there was lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Basically, what they're saying is, the whole of the Jewish community started to grieve. That, that's what that means. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak and one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what was going on. They went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate and Mordecai told them all that had happened and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. How evil is that? We'll destroy a people and we'll make sure we make some money out of it. Like When I talk about a bad guy, that's pretty bad. That's not the kind of guy you want to meet down a dark alley, is it? Not a nice chap. Uh, so Mordecai gave a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. 
So Esther was told what Mordecai had said, and Esther spoke and commanded him to go and speak to Mordecai and said this, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's province know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. Basically, in other words, you don't just go and see the most powerful man on earth without an appointment. Even his wife has to have an appointment. You can't just rock up. This isn't a a barber service. This is a salon. You've got to make your appointment in advance. You can't just turn up. And if you do, if you so risk it, if you so just burst in and say, I'm here, king, even his wife, the decree is she'll be put to death. So Esther's like, I can't just do that, Mordecai. I can't just rock up to the king unannounced. He will kill me, she says. Except if when that happens, the king holds out the golden scepter so that that person may live. But as for me, Esther says, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Um, The king had lots of ladies. So that's not unusual that... You know, she wouldn't have seen her husband for 30 days. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows... If you've ever heard this expression, this is where it comes from. It comes from the Bible. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Ever used that expression? It's in your Bible, so that's where it comes from. Then Esther told the reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in all of Susa. Gather all the people. Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I... And my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered them. That's amazing. She goes into the king. She knows she's going to die. And yet at the end of this kind of conversation with Mordecai, she says, you know what? If I perish, I perish. I'll take a hit for the team. I'll go. I'll go and speak to him and I'll see what he says. If there was faith that was heroic, it's found in someone like Esther there, isn't it? I'm prepared to die in order to spare other people. And so, uh, spoiler alert, Esther goes into the king. Uh, He holds out the golden scepter. um, And in a strange turn of events, Mordecai gets to ride through the city on a horse. And everybody goes, how great is Mordecai? Haman gets hung on his own noose. And it's a happy ever after story, at least temporarily, in Persia. All because of Esther. And... um, There's courage, there's bravery, there's selflessness, there's sacrifice, there's love. And she goes from winning a beauty contest to saving her people. It's it's quite remarkable. But also, it's quite remarkable when you consider she's doing that to the most powerful man on earth. And the second most powerful man on earth. And one of the things I want us to take away from this as as we look at the story of Esther. And for us, because the whole point of this heroic faith series is this. That just like Esther has been heroic with her faith. You too can be heroic. You too can contend and stand in faith. Now, we're not going to have the exact same scenario, but there's things that we can take out of this that we can learn. And the first thing is this, and it's absolutely massive for every single one of us, is knowing who God is. 
Because that's what Esther, Esther comes to realize. I'm one of God's people here. And so I've got to know if I'm one of God's people who God is. Esther, on the face of it, this might, this might surprise some of you, is a godless book on the face of it. What I mean by that is, you read through Esther, you will not see one mention of the name God. You will not see any reference to God in the book of Esther. It's bizarre. On the face of it, it would seem like it's a, a godless book when you compare it to every other book in the Bible where God speaks or the prophet of God speaks and says something. There is zero of that in Esther. It doesn't happen. From start to finish, there is nothing. And actually, you'd be forgiven for thinking God seems really quiet. God could seem, when you read through Esther, quite distant. Well, where's God in the Jewish people's massive time of need and trouble? Where is he? Where's the, the road to Damascus experience, the bright lights that just break in and save the people miraculously? Where's the prophet of God who, who comes and, and saves them? Where's the Daniel character who says, no, I'll carry on praying even if it costs me my life? There's none of that. There's just a girl who was taken into captivity, who wins a beauty contest, and then goes from that to complete hero out of nowhere. And in a sense, I think for Esther, perhaps, maybe Esther felt God was distant. They've been persecuted. They've been taken from their home. They've been taken captive. They're all alone. Where's God? Where is he? I've not seen him. I'm not seeing him at work. Where is he when I need him? Does God even have a plan for my life? You ever ask that question to yourself? When God seems distant, when God seems quiet, well, does God really love me? Is God really bothered about me? We have to know this, and Esther needed to know this. Even when God seems quiet and most hidden, he is still present and working. Just because we don't see it doesn't mean God's not at work. Esther doesn't necessarily see it. Does that mean God's not at work in the book of Esther? Of course not. You see so many little instances where you go, oh yeah, God's organized that so that happens and God's arranged that so that can happen. But all in the background, just because we're blind to something doesn't mean it's not happening. I came across this um, poem that's often used at funerals. Obviously, I'm not using it in that context this morning. But it's great. It says this, I'm standing upon the seashore. You might have heard it. A ship at my side spreads her white sails to the morning breeze and starts for the blue ocean. She's an object of beauty and strength. I stand and watch her until at length she hangs like a speck of white cloud, just where the sea and sky come to mingle with one another. Then someone at my side says, there, she is gone. Gone where? Gone from my sight, that is all. She is just as large in mast and hull and spar as she was when she left my side. And she is just as able to bear her load of living freight to the next port. Her diminished size is in me, not in her. And so often that's true with God. That we're the ones that diminish God just because he seems quiet. But God is still at work. We just don't see it. Maybe we're looking in the wrong places. Maybe we're asking the wrong questions. But God is still at work. Sometimes God's at work, we don't see it, but has God ceased to be God? He hasn't, has he? 
He's still the same. We've declared this morning about the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God. He's still God. He's still the creator of the universe. He's not ceased loving us just because we can't fathom it or understand it. He's still good. He's still faithful. And in those moments, like for Esther, and this takes heroic faith because this isn't easy. We have to say, I'm going to trust you regardless. You know, sometimes in our Christian walk, sometimes in life, we have to say, God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't understand, but I'm going to trust you despite it. That's faith. It's really easy to follow God if like, everything's lining up and everything's easy. But actually, sometimes when we can't see God at work or we're thrown a little curveball, then it's saying, God's still good. God's still for me. I still believe it. It's critical that we know who God is. And that's what faith looks like for us today. Mordecai says in 4.14, Hey, Esther, who knows, maybe you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I don't know what's going on, but maybe, maybe God's going to use you in this moment right now. And at the end of the chapter, of course, Esther says, okay, let's do this. Let's do this, Mordecai. If I perish, I perish. I can't see God. I don't know where God is, but if I perish, I perish. I'm going to stand in faith. I'm going to go for it regardless. It seems outlandish. It even seems reckless. And it might seem reckless for us to go. I'm going to continue to trust in God unless we know Romans 8.28 is true. Now, Romans 8.28 is one of those fridge magnet verses that I talk about so often, you know, your your Jeremiah 29, 11s, your Romans 8, 28s, which says this, we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not always easy to see that. The caveat there is for those that love God. It's not like a blanket, everyone's going to have a good time. There's also a second part of that verse, for those who are called according to his purpose. Which means bad stuff that happens in our life, and it does, can be used by God for your good. You just might not see it in the moment. And sometimes, and I, and I say this, and, you know, and it weighs heavy on my heart, there are things that we just won't understand this side of heaven. There are those things that we are going to struggle to say, I can't see the good in that God. But faith is saying, I'm going to trust you despite it. And there are going to be those things that happen in life. But the test of our faith is that we say, okay, God, I don't understand. I don't get it. I really really wish I did. I really wish I could see the good in this, God, but I'm going to trust you anyway. That's what we have to do. And what is God's good purpose? What is the good? For us, it's to be made more like Jesus. That's what it means. If you're a Christian, God's purpose is to make you more like his son. To, to refine our character. And I had this conversation a few months ago with someone who sent me a text about something. And I said in my text, oh, I didn't think I had any edges left for God to knock off me. <laughs> How foolish. <laughs> I've got lots of edges. <laughs> but just God chips away. Goes, no, that's not good for you, Daniel, that you act in that way. <laughs> I'm just going to refine your character again, mate. Believe me, that happens frequently. <laughs> Just keep chipping away. And you see that in the New Testament as well, where God talks about pruning us and making us fit for purpose. And in practice, it looks like us going, even in moments of confusion, I'm going to say God is at work. Living courageous lives that are full of integrity. We're going to hold the line. We're going to keep following after him despite our circumstance. 
to the best of our ability. And the other side of that is we'll trust God to protect, protect, to preserve, and for God to deal with the detail. The stuff I don't understand, I'll let God deal with the detail. In practice, it looks like us trying to ride a bike. There's the element of human responsibility. We're going to stand, and we're going to be full of integrity, and we're going to contend for the truth, and we're going to be made more like Jesus, but also God's the boss. And we're going to trust in him to be good and faithful. So that means we have to have, in terms of faith, it has to be built on that knowledge of who God is. You want to be heroic, you've got to know who your God is. You've got to know that actually you're safe, that you can trust him despite your circumstance. But following on from that, you've got to know who you are. Esther needed a reminder of who she was, didn't she? She needed to know she was Hadassah, that she was a Jewish young woman, that she would associate with God's people. Verse 14, Mordecai sending the message to Esther about such a time as this, You need to step forward now, Esther. You need to take a stand. You need to know who you are. You want to be heroic. You've got to know you are a child of the King of Kings. And there are people who are relying on you, Esther. There are people who need you, Esther. Step forward. This is your moment. Take it. Take the opportunity that's been given for you at such a time as this. And I want you to realize this, that Esther has nothing to gain personally by stepping forward. Now, okay, there's a slim chance, a really, really slim chance that the king might hold out the golden scepter. But does that mean he'll revoke the decree? Does that mean he'll change his mind? Does the most powerful man on earth do that? When the second most powerful man on earth is kind of bringing in the cash? Looks fairly unlikely. She's got nothing personally to gain. In fact, by her doing this, she signs her own death warrant. She publicly adds her names to the list of Jews. Do you get that? She would have got away with it. She could have hidden. No, I'm Esther. I've never heard of Hadassah. What are you talking about? Who's Mordecai? Never heard of him. She could have done that. She probably could have got away with it. Do you see what I mean? She could have gone, ah, the Jewish people, whatever. She doesn't do that. She steps forward because she realizes this, that there's no benefit to her, but there's benefit to others. She's willing to sacrifice herself. She's willing to die that others might have the opportunity to live. Now, if that's not heroic, I don't know what is. If that's not something to admire, if that's not something to go, I want to live like that, then I don't know what is. To live sacrificially in that way. And it is a massive privilege, actually. Esther becomes part of God's family, doesn't she? She says, I'm, I'm a Jewish person. I'm going to associate with my people. There's a great privilege in being part of the church. And I don't mean just this church. I mean the church. That we're part of a family. That's what church is. And the Bible knows nothing of solitary Christianity. It doesn't exist. You know, if you meet people who, who say they're Christians and you talk, start talking about church and say, I don't go to church... The Bible knows nothing of that. That's not something, that's not how we do it. The Bible doesn't talk about it. God doesn't talk about it because we're made for community. We're made to relate to God, but also made to relate to one another. And Esther was missing that. She was kind of on a solitary course. But in this, she goes, I'm going to identify myself with a larger bunch of people. For better or worse, I'm going to stand with them. 
And that is what church is. That's what makes church so beautiful. There isn't a perfect church because we're all in it. I think it's Nicky Gumbel says, if you find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. I think that's what he says. It doesn't exist. I think we get close. But it doesn't exist, okay? Because we're all just people navigating life and we rub up against each other and we get things wrong. But we're made for community. We're meant to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And that's the church. We are meant to live in community. We're meant to serve one another. That's God's plan for us. We're not meant to be alone. We are meant to rub shoulders and walk together on things. Just as Enoch walked with God. We're to walk with God and to walk with one another. And it's not about what does church give me. That's not the question. Esther doesn't go, what do the Jewish people give me? She doesn't do that. She says, what can I give to the Jewish people? That's what church is. How can I be a part of this? How can I serve? How can I contribute? How can I further the kingdom of heaven? How can I be a part of what God is doing today? And I firmly believe RK is here for such a time as this. I believe that. That's why we started the church. Because I believed it to be true then and I believe it to be true now. But I also know we are just one part of the jigsaw. That in our town there are many great churches that are part of that too. And we want to stand with them, don't we? We want to do this together. In contending for the truth, in identifying with one another that we are the people of God. To win Chesterfield. To see Chesterfield transformed. To serve our town. And every single one of us in this room, whether you believe this or not, I'm telling you it's true, has a role to play and a part to play and it's significant. Every single one of us, if we're following after God, we have the opportunity to serve in some way, shape or form. And God gives us, doesn't he? He gives us power. He gives us responsibility. He gives us influence that we can use it for his ends. Not for our own ends. That's when it starts going wrong. When Haman here uses all the power and all the influence and all the responsibility he has to further himself, it doesn't end well. You know, when you read through Esther, when you read it, it is slightly humorous what happens to Haman and how it unfolds. And I think it's deliberately put in that way. But it doesn't go well for him because he's putting himself forward. But in the book of Esther, the Jewish people, I hope you see this, are completely powerless. They're completely helpless. A decree's been put out that they're all going to be killed. What can they do about it? Can they complain to their MP? Can they write a letter to, to, to Xerxes and say, excuse me, are you sure this means me? Are you sure it means all my people? They haven't got voting rights. Nobody cares about the Jews. They're just there to make up the numbers. They're just there to serve the Persian Empire. They're just the captives. They have no influence, power, responsibility. They have nothing. They are utterly helpless in this scenario. There's a king, and he calls the shots. End of story. That's it. But there's Esther, and she is the one person who has the ear of the king. The Jewish people don't have the ear of the king, but his wife does. The Jewish people can't get access to the king, but his wife can. And she doesn't. I want you to see this. Esther has the opportunity to further her own agenda here. She could perhaps become the second most powerful person in all of Persia. She could perhaps benefit from all the wealth that's going to come in for the destruction of the Jewish people. She could perhaps become even more famous and even more well-known. But she doesn't go down that route. 
at all. Instead, she uses her power, she uses her influence, she uses her responsibility not to further her own agenda, but to help others. And that is leadership. That is sacrifice. That's what love looks like. Love doesn't look like roses and chocolates on Valentine's Day, although I'm sure it's helpful. Love looks like sacrifice. Love looks like going out of your way for the benefit of the other. Love looks like serving the other, even at an expense to yourself. That's what Esther does here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use all that I have. I'm going to use my voice to help those that don't have a voice. Everything that's within me, I'm going to speak up for those that can't speak up for themselves. And that was the call for Esther, but it's the call for the church today, isn't it? In our society, even in our town, there are going to be those with no power, no responsibility, no influence whatsoever. The people that society just cast off and don't care about. Who's going to speak up for them? Who's going to take a stand? Who's going to plead on their behalf? Who's going to love sacrificially? Surely it has to be the church. Surely it has to be us that stand in the gap, just as Esther stands in the gap. And some of us here are powerful. Some of us here are really powerful. We've got a great deal of power and a great deal of influence, whether that's in our family units. Perhaps some of us are teachers, so we have influence over a whole classroom of children. Some of us are in business, and we're involved in making deals and and, and working with businesses and, and selling things and trade. Some of us work in the healthcare system and we, we have great influence in, oh, this is what's wrong with you. This is what you need to be helped. Many of us in this room here, whether we're teachers, doctors, artists, people of business, people in the home, people in the workplace, we have this great opportunity to use what God has given us, not to further our own agenda, but to further his. And I tell you, it's really easy to spot whether you're furthering your own agenda or furthering his. If you're furthering your own agenda, all you ever talk about is yourself. All you'll ever talk about is my career, my plan, my this, my that. Let's start looking after the other. Let's start putting the other before ourselves. How can we bring benefit? How can we add value? How can we, RK, make Chesterfield a nicer place to live? Because we should be. Chesterfield should be the best place on the planet to live. I know it's not near the sea. I know it's not, and I know it's raining outside. But because God's people are so, like, going for it, so bringing benefit and adding value to the town, and God puts you, those positions of power, those positions of authority, those positions of influence you have, you are put there by God for such a time as this. The question is, how are you going to use it? Are you going to use it like Esther used it to benefit others, or are we going to use it like Haman attempted to, to benefit ourselves? The heroic way is putting everybody else ahead of ourselves. What are we going to do with the gifts that God has given us? And every single one of us have been given unique gifts. We are uniquely created. And we, I believe, are uniquely here for such a time as this. That we can serve God, that we can serve one another. And spiritually speaking, our service of one another in the context of church is so important, isn't it? I love what Esther does here. If I perish, I perish. I'll sacrifice myself for the benefit of others. That's faith. That's the call. That's what it means to be like Esther, if you like. But actually, 
as great as Esther is, she ain't good enough, is she? She's pretty good, but she isn't good enough. What does Esther do? She spares the Jewish people in one place at one time in history. It's remarkable, but it's not permanent. It doesn't save the people permanently. It doesn't save us permanently. We needed somebody else to come, didn't we? Who would sacrifice himself, who would put others before his own needs, that through somebody's death, others might be brought to life. Now, Esther doesn't die, but there's someone who comes along and hangs upon a cross that we might have life. And that's Jesus, isn't it? That's the good news of the gospel. Our sin, our rubbish, our stuff. Now, the Jewish people hadn't necessarily done anything wrong, but they had a death warrant over their life. We've done heaps of stuff wrong, and so we have a death warrant over our life. And yet Jesus steps into the breach for us, dies upon a cross that we might go free. That's why the cross is so important, because it's death to death and life for me. It's the point where our eternal destiny changes. It's the point where we can go from misery and ruin and recklessness and be given new life. All because God said, I'm going to sacrifice myself because I love them. All because God said, I count them as more valuable than myself. It's remarkable. And that's the story of the whole Bible. That's the story of Esther. Esther is a foreshadow of what's to come. Esther is a, this is what happens when someone sacrifices himself, saves their people. Oh look, here comes Jesus, sacrifices himself, saves their people. But the good news is, saves their people for all time. And I've said this, the moment you put your trust in Jesus is the moment that eternity begins. We know that, right? God places, according to Ecclesiastes, eternity within our hearts. That's remarkable, isn't it? The moment you say yes to Christ is the moment your new life begins. And what I love about what Jesus does is this. He doesn't just stay in heaven. He could have done. The eternal great king of kings, the Lord of lords, the ultimate hero, the the, um, God himself. But he doesn't, does he? He steps down onto the earth. And more than that, he becomes like you and me. Human. So that, why? He can represent us. What does Esther do? She goes, I'm Jewish. I'll identify myself with those people. What does Jesus do? I'm human. I'm going to identify myself with these people. Why? So I can save them. You know, Jesus is still human now. He hasn't reverted. He hasn't abandoned us. He's still the God-man. All so that you and I could become the children of God. And the way that we do that is through faith and repentance. The way that we do that is we say, hey, you know what, God? I've lived my life. I've turned my back on you. I know I've got it wrong. Would you forgive me? And you know what? When we do that, he does. I love it. I said this so many times because I think it's such a powerful image that Justin Larkham shared a couple of years ago. It's one of my favorite images of the gospel that we can walk all this way, walking away from God. God's back there. We just walk this way, walk this way, walk this way. But if we repent, if we turn around and we take just one step back, that, that step of repentance, God's right there. Just because we can't see God at work doesn't mean he's not there. Just like the ship. Just because the ship's out of our sight, has the ship changed? It's still as big and vast as it was the moment it left our side. Esther saved one generation 
at one point in history, Jesus Christ this morning offers you eternal life and saves every generation through us trusting in him. All these heroes we've looked at, whether it's Enoch, Haggai, Peter, and now Esther, the real reason they're heroic, the real reason they're heroes is they look to God. And for us, you want a heroic faith. You want to know, I want to, I want to, I want to be used by God. I want to make a difference with my life. Look to Jesus. That's what we do. It's about him. It's for him. It's through him. You're not going to be able to do it apart from him. Just like Esther, just like all these heroes of the faith, is fixing our eyes on him. So that's what I want us to do this morning. And we'll do that as we worship and we'll do that as we respond. But I just want to pray for us because there might be some of us here this morning that, you know, when I described Esther as a, a godless book, I don't mean that it's not God's word. Of course it is. I just mean there's no reference to God in the book. Sometimes our life can feel like that. God feels distant. God feels far. Well, where's God on those pages? Well, where's God in my life? You might feel like that this morning as I was describing that. Well, I want you to know this morning, as I read that thing about the boat, that this is true for us. She's just as large in mast and hull and spar as she was when she left my side, just as able to bear her load of living freight to the port. Her diminished size is in me, not in her. God wants nothing more than to meet with you this morning. 